Uh, if you open up your Bibles there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we are going to only take the first 12 verses of uh, this chapter. We'll save the a big topic uh, of, uh, of the remaining of chapter 4 next week, Lord willing. But read along with me here, or at least listen here as I read verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Note those last two things. And verse 2, for you know that know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sacrifice your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in passion of lust like the gentiles who do not know god that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner because the lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we command you, commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So, Father, we come to you, and as we open up your scripture here, and we take just a few verses and a few moments of this day, of this week, as we gather together here in your name, we ask you, to Holy Spirit, to illuminate your word to us and speak to us directly, individually, but also corporately as a body of believers here gathered here in your name. And we lift your name on high, Lord Jesus, and it's your precious name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. So, as we continue here, as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and here in the book of Thessalonians, if you remember the first three chapters was very much informational for us, information regarding the ideal Christian church, what it looks like to have a good, solid Christian ministry, and also to have a, a, uh, a life that is completely devoted to a Christian faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation. And we gave that information to you. The next two chapters is the application the practicality of actually applying it to your life. This is your part where you need to make sure this is what it looks like to be in a Christian faith. This is what it looks like to have a Christian uh, ministry that God's called you to do, but also to be uh, an ideal Christian church that you're part of. You are the church. You're the bride of Christ. And these things are informational, but it's only informational unless you apply those to your life and it lives it out in real time, day by day, moment by moment, as you live your life here on this earth until he calls you and I home. Now, if you remember, 1 Thessalonians is all about the second coming of Jesus Christ coming back for his church, for you, for you, the bride, and he's going to come back for us. And we see that each chapter ends with a reminder of Jesus is coming soon. Now, this chapter is very heavy on that subject of the rapture of the church when he comes back in his second coming and takes us home. We're going to save that because it's our hope, it's our promise that we hold to each day in our Christian life. And that is what we're going to take on today in the first part of chapter 4 is a Christian life and the things that uh, Paul is warning these believers here in Thessalonica, these believers, what they need to keep their eyes on. Now, also know here as we go through this, 
he's not saying that they're actually caught up into these sins or having these major challenges, but the emphasis, as you will see, is that they're living as a church body of believers and a culture, a Greek culture, that is absolutely endorses sexual immorality, absolutely endorses the false gods, the false living and the worldly living, the fleshly living, and he's warning them, be careful because... The world around you is trying to absorb you into this culture, even as a Christian. You've come out of that life. You're not to go back into that life. And he's going to give us warnings to how to live this Christian life. And we'll take this right here. But one of the things about Paul I love, and if you study Paul's, all his epistles and his letters, that Paul speaks very often in each of his letters about a Christian walk. We see in Romans 4.12, walk in the steps of the faith, he says. In Romans 6.4, walk in newness of life. It's, it should be new to you when you come and become a believer. Romans 8.1, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit guide you who lives within you, uh, rule and move your, through your life, not your flesh. Romans 13.13, 13, let us walk Properly, as in the day, not in a revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in strife or envy. These are not walking properly if you're doing those things. He's warning us we should walk properly and not do those things. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And then Galatians 5, 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And it goes on and on and on here. If you go to you know, in Ephesians, he does the same thing. He's reminding, once you become a believer as a child of God, there's a way you should be walking. There's a way to be walking. There's a proper way to do that. There is one that brings uh, pleasure or it pleases God in the things that we do. So as, a, as someone who is a non-believer, an unbeliever, someone who does not want to give their life to Jesus Christ, the very first step that they need to have this new life that they might be looking for, that they realize they come to a point at the end of themselves that the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and those things that this worldliness, these things that come and can grip people, they bring people, a man to their, his knees or a woman to her knees and says, I need a new life. So the question is, if someone asks you about this new life, what do you tell them? You tell them one thing. There's only one step you must take. And the very first step to be a Christian is to put that step of faith into Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and surrender all. That's the first step. After the first step, what's the next step? Well, the next step, and once you're born again, is to walk by faith in this new Christian life that God has given you. Well, how do I do that? Isn't it wonderful? You just get to pursue that, that walk every day when you wake up. You pursue that walk of faith. God, I don't know what's going to happen today. Some things you've revealed to me and some things I think you want me to do. But then you can change it at any point in time. But, Lord, I perhaps today is the day you take me home. We always have that. I think this is what you want me to do. This is what I think I'm doing. This is what it appears to be doing. And oh, that's a surprise. I wasn't planning on that. But always knowing that perhaps today the Lord is going to take us home. Because this is not our home. The earth is not our home. Heaven's our home once you become born again and you become a child of God. And so when you think about this walk by faith, it's a, a walk is a, a sense of motion. We are a life we live as a believer. It's the direction how we live our Christian life. That is our walk. First Thessalonians, the whole theme is about the fact that we continue to walk by faith because we took that step of faith and put our trust in Jesus Christ for our entire life, for our, for our future, our eternity. But the whole thing is, is our coming of Jesus Christ for his church, for you. And in that light of that truth, and in that light of that truth, the fact that Jesus can come back for you at any moment in time, the question is now, how shall I walk today and each and every day until he comes and takes me home? That's the question you should be asking. And so here we'll see in this part of chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, or actually of all of chapter 4, I should say, of 1 Thessalonians, is broken into three parts. We're going to see the holiness. That's what God's called us to do practically, to live a holy life, verses 1 through 8. Then we're going to see the habits, uh, the habits 
that you are need to um, start doing in your life to have a happy life as a Christian. Or have that happy Christian life. It needs to have certain habits that you must be applying into your life. That's verses 9 through 12. These are the first two parts we'll take today. And then finally, next week, Lord willing, we will say, see our hope. Uh, verses 13 through 8, or 13 through 18, uh, in regards to the actual rapture of the church or the second coming of Jesus Christ. But we see here right in the very beginning in verse 1, the word he uses here is finally. <laughs> if you know any good pastor, you, and they say finally, that means you have another 30 minutes plus on the t of the teaching. So uh, <laughs> we'll try not to use that. But finally, we're going to be here for probably more of an hour, if anything. But finally, he says to them, finally from what? Well, I, I kind of go back to verse 13 of chapter 3. And where he's, he says, he, he, God may, or the Holy Spirit may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So again, his second coming, he's reminding them, second coming, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back. And he's reminding them. And as it goes, it flows right into this part. Remember, the, the, the letter he wrote did not have chapters and verses. It's just one letter. So you have to understand, he's talking about holiness. And he goes right in now in this, we call chapter 4, explaining a practicality or the practical things he, they need to, he's expecting them to do or we should be doing in, uh, for God in regards to living this holy life. And so he says, finally, brother, we urge you and exhort you, exhort in the Lord Jesus. He's not saying... Listen to me. I'm urging you with my own wisdom to tell you, what you how you need to practically live. He's not saying that. He's not sitting there going, I got the great book I just read from the great author of such and such, and he's got such wisdom, and oh, it really, it's just exhorting you to do these things. And no, he's not saying that either. He's saying, I'm exhorting and I am urging you based on the will and the truths of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how I encourage you and that is how I exhort you in regards to living a Christian life. Nothing man can offer is going to help you. The only thing will help you is if that man or that woman is speaking the will of God, the truths of God from the scriptures. It's the only way you can be helped. And so he emphasized right up there, I'm about to tell you something, it's not coming from me, it's not coming from Timothy or Silas here, and my buddies, my companions, my travel guys here, we're not missionaries coming with some kind of a special message, I'm only giving you and urging you and exhorting you based on the Lord Jesus Christ and the will of God. Got that straight? That's what Paul's saying, finally got that straight? Great. So he moves on, he says, you should abound, abound mean spiritually grow more and more. You need to continue to grow as a born-again believer. You need as a child of God not to be stay in this infancy stage of mentality or, or how you walk. You need to grow spiritually, become, become mature, and to be fruitful in your life for what God has for you. So he's encouraging them to be spiritually growing or to abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So he says, I'm just reminding you here. In those three weeks that I was with you, teaching you and leading to people to Christ, and you guys are getting born again and you're having to start this new life, I, I taught a, a bunch of things to you. And two main things I taught you is how to walk this Christian life. How to practically do that. I taught you. I demonstrated it. I, I lived among you for a very short period of time, but I'm writing back to you to encourage you what I've already told you. But I also wanted to make sure I teach you these things because I want to make sure you please God in this Christian life that you're walking. I want you to please God. I want you to walk a Christian life that's pleasing to God. And he says there, for, in verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. I told you things that this weren't options if you wanted to implement this in your life. These things are not something, oh, Paul, that really sounds interesting to me. Let me ponder on it and I'll think about it. Maybe I might consider trying it out. No, no it's not the, this is not the kind of conversation. A lot of people try to do that with Christian, Christianity and with the scripture. Let me ponder on it. Let me consider it. 
Think about it. Maybe I will on this part, but this part I'm not really jiggy with this. So I'm not going to do that part. No, he says, I gave you all the commandments of the truths of Jesus Christ. This wasn't an option for you to implement. This wasn't something you were going to practice like a like New Year's resolution. You're going to try it in January, and by February you will completely forget about your insanity of what you just did in January. No, this is something you're committed to because it's commandments from your Savior, your master of your life, who, who purchased your life with his own blood. And you're commanded to do it. It's not an option. And we're to walk, we're to please God. To be obedient to God's commandment is pleasing to God. But sometimes someone asks, can you be a believer and do what God calls you to do, but not please God? And the answer is yes. Jonah is a perfect example of someone who did not want to do what God called him to do, and that is to go to share the gospel with the people in Nineveh. And he was willing to do as far as I'm going to run away from, far away from that place, Nineveh, and do what God called me to do. You know the story. If you haven't, I highly recommend you read those four little chapters because they're the most powerful. Truly is my favorite book. Eventually, we're going to get to that book. I don't know when, but we'll eventually we'll get to it. But you know the story. He at least was confessed and said, yes, the reason why all of us are going down on this ship is because of me. In about two seconds, they thought about it, and he was overboard. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> and then God, in his credible miracle, prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah up. For how many days was he in the belly of that great fish? Three. Talk about thinking he had died and was buried for three days. And it didn't get any better than that, right? He shows up at the, the shore of the land that directly takes him to where? To Nineveh. But his life was changed because of his disobedience. Did you notice that? He came out, he vomited, was vomited out by that great fish. And you have to remember the acid of that great fish. He would have been a completely uh, bleached out, hairless man. Naked. Ready to storm Nineveh. And can you imagine what he looked like when he walked into the city and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. As he choked every word out of his mouth because he didn't want to say it. So here he is. God was going to have him do what God called him to do as a prophet of God, right? And yes, he did the commandment and he ended up going because he was forced to go. But it didn't please God. Why? Because his attitude because his heart wasn't right in doing the work that God called him to do. May that be a warning to all of us that our passion and our doing, we don't do it out of drudgery or have to, it's because we get to. We're a child of God that's been saved. How could we not have an attitude of serving him with absolute joy and without any reservation? In our giving and our service and our sacrifice, it is so minuscule compared to saving your eternal life from hell and having you to be able to go to heaven. I mean, you have to get that settled in your mind, my brothers and sisters, because once you understand the simplicity of the fact that you've been saved, how can you not find the joy and the, just the, the blessing of serving your God Almighty, your Savior, your Master. 
That's what Paul's saying here. He says, this is not an option. This is something you must do because it's abounding in the, to, to, for you as a Christian life to mature and an understanding. When he says abound more and more, that means your Christian maturity will never be reached while you're on this earth. You think you've ever arrived. Oh, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been studying the scripture for 40 years. So? Abound more and more, my brother. Go deeper. Ask and God give me something to do even greater for you. And then he'll bring you to like many stories. I just drew a blank on the story's lady's name. Uh, Crosby. What's, what's the lady who wrote a lot of music? Fanny, thank you. Chuck Smith told a story in one of his teachings one time that he went and visited her in the hospital. And she was just not capable of doing what she had been doing for the Lord. And he, she says to him, I don't know what else to do for the Lord. There's nothing I can do. I am, I'm, I'm old. I'm bedridden. I'm, I'm not capable. And I remember Chuck saying to her, but now you have the greatest ministry ever that God could give you. You now have the ministry of prayer, the greatest ministry for your last days. See, we sometimes think prayer is a secondhand thought. A moment of desperation will finally come to God and ask and talk with him about it. When it's actually the greatest thing we can do in our life throughout the day, nonstop, like breathing, is communion with our Heavenly Father. Why? Because Jesus made a way for you to have that conversation with God. And so Paul says here, abound more and more. Just as I've been teaching you, just as we've been showing you, and you need to do this because it absolutely pleases God. And it doesn't please you, it pleases God. That's the challenge with Christianity today. Will this church please me? Will this get what I can get out of this church? Will this, will they get, you know, it's constantly looking for what you can get from it. And Paul is saying to them there, you're going to do these things because it's going to please God. It's not going to please you, but it will please God. But ultimately, you'll be blessed. And when you and I as a Christian has this basic understanding the following instructions that he gives us to follow as a Christian in our Christian life is very simple. It's very biblically and morally based sense that you and I have. Once we understand the simplicity that we desire to please God in all the things that we say and do and not ourselves. It's a filter. I'm about to do this. Will that please you, God? No. Okay, then I'm not going to do it. I want to go here. I, want to, I really desire to go here. I know that's where I need to go. I, I know that's a call of God. Hawaii, 80 degrees, the winds, pineapple, you know. Everything that the Lord, of course, would want you to do. And if he says, yes, that will please me, then guess what? Pack your little flip-flops. Here we go. We're going to Hawaii. But if he calls you to the great north country, pack your muckalucks and <laughs> come on up. But we see here, we want to please God, not ourselves in our walk as a Christian walk here. And it's so important in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, colon. Do you notice the colon after sanctification in your Bible? 
that means there's going to be a listings. And we're going to see several listings in, in, in practicality for you to live as in your Christian life. Sanctification or holiness. That's what? First, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. The very first thing he mentions. You must abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess your own vessel, your own body. You should know how to control it. In sanctification and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles, the non-believers who do not know God. You know God. You should be acting a different way than someone who does not know God. In the areas of sexual immorality. Moral purity here in verses 3 and 4 is absolutely essential. Because why? Moral purity pleases God and not the self. That's because it's in the will of God. There's four questions I want you to ponder on. When it comes to this, this thing that God has called us to stay away from. First one is, is it helpful? That's the very first thing is something is presented to you. You say, is this helpful? We get that in 1 Corinthians 6.12 where he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Didn't say it was sin. I'm just saying it's not helpful for you to do certain things. Even though legally, lawfully, you could do them. But the first question you should ask to help you avoid sexual immorality is, is this helpful? The second one, is it addictive or does it have any power over me? We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12b, which is the second part of that verse. It says, and all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So if you're about to ask the question, is that addictive to me? I've had to ask that question so many times when it comes to good brownies. Is that addictive to me? It has a power over me? Is it affecting my relationships? Or is it affecting my health? Should I eat another pan of brownies? I think it's helpful. <laughs> but is it addictive? Does it have power over me? Okay, everyone clear the room. I've got my brownies and I'm sitting here. Don't talk to me. I, my, I, my life gets, you know. Thankfully, it's not. But if it's not brownies, what is it to you? What is it that you're participating in that is addictive to you, has power over you, you can't control it? If it has, no touchy. Not even a little bit. No touchy. Why? Because God says, in, to be in my will, have nothing or no one have over power over you. I'm the only one that should have the power over you. Third question. Is it stumbling others? If I'm about to do this, it's lawful, it's, it's not bad, it's not addictive power, but does it stumble others if I do it? We see that in 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For the sake of others, we do, we stop it. And no, it's not the right answer to say they'll have to get over it. If they're weak, that's their problem. They should be in the scriptures more. They should go to church more. They should repent more. No. For the sake of others, is there anything in your life that is more important than the love for your brother or sister and something you're doing hinders their ability to, in some form or fashion? Those are things you have to ask. My fourth question would be, is it bring glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So does it bring glory to God? What I'm about to do or say, does it bring glory? Yes or no. If it's a no, don't do it. Don't touch. Don't do. Four simple questions you should be immediately in that computer brain of yours should go. 
Because you have the Holy Spirit giving you a check. You don't need accountability with me. You don't need accountability too much. As they say, for the, as long as you're growing and maturing and you're accountable to the Holy Spirit that lives inside you, you have all the accountability you need because you have God Almighty you're accountable to. It doesn't mean God doesn't use a brother or sister in your life to help you but, and encourage you, but the Holy Spirit is alive and well and you're not grieving the Spirit. He's going to tell you clearly and answer those questions, those four questions for you regarding that. So the question, he's right up front, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. We see this word here, uh, uh, sexual immorality, is in the, the Greek called pornea. And pornea is where we get our um, uh, English word pornography. It is any kind of sexual activity or conduct, thought or action outside of marriage. And we are to say no to this and to bring us into the will of God by saying no to this. Why? Because Paul says right here, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Remember the first century Roman culture that they were living was marked by sexual immorality to the nth degree. The Roman Empire looked down upon chastity. It looked down upon this sexual purity in someone's life. It's almost like that is not the virtues you should have. What do you mean you haven't slept around by your age 15? What do you mean you haven't partaked in pornography by now? It goes on and on. You think it's just new today? No, it was back in the culture then. And that's why Paul, God was using uh, Paul to warn them to watch out for these things. Sanctification means we need to be set apart for God. Our, our Christian life needs to be set apart. It should be different from what the world is. Because we have a possessional uh, holiness. Because once you've been born again, you've been made holy. You've, you've been positionally, you're in a, in the as a child of God, in the family of God. You you're have the holiness of God. But the actual practical holiness, how you're to live out your Christian life, and Paul is encouraging him what you should not do so that you're in stay in the will of God. So Paul's making it very clear what the will of God was for the Christian when it comes to their sanctification to be able to continue to be set apart for the use of God in this very godless culture that they're finding themselves in that is rampant as sexual immorality. And he says, if you're... Look at your Christian life and then you are thinking and doing like an unbelievers in this Gentile world that you live in. Then you're acting and behaving like you're a non-believer. That should not be. And those who do not know God, Paul says, do not have that spiritual resource, he's trying to get across to them, to walk a pure life with the Lord. But we have to have this knowledge and understanding of Paul saying, we must understand, you must fight against any form of sexual immorality. Abstain from it. The old King James Version translates sexual immorality as fornication. But again, fornication just means it's, uh, it kind of denotes that a, an, um, every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse is not allowed. And so many people over the years have tried to justify and rationalize and think it's no big deal and that they're living with their girlfriend and because we love each other. You know, in God's eyes, we know, we, they know our hearts, we love each other. And marriage is not a big, that's a worldly, manly thing. You know, we hear, I hear it all the time. 
And I would just understand and try to get people to understand that God didn't say you're not to have a sexual relationship. Matter of fact, he created the sexual relationship. All he's saying is do it God's way and you're blessed. You don't do it God's way, it will bring absolute consequences to your life. God grants great sexual liberty in the marriage relationship. We see that emphasized in Hebrews 13.4. But Satan's very, very subtle, slithery way as often and so often in people's lives are constantly he's looking and encouraging you to have sex outside of marriage. That's how Satan works. But not only does he try to encourage those outside of marriage to have sex, but he also encourages those within a marriage not to have sex. And Satan knows that, that will divide and conquer a relationship of marriage that way as well. He continues here in five things to abstain and helpful things to abstain from sexual immorality. We'll see that in verses 4 through 8 here. That each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. We are to live differently than the world when we possess our body in sanctification and honor. Because immorality is the opposite of honor. Because it degrades and debases the self of you. Those who do not restrain their sexual desires act more like animals than humans following every impulse without any restraint or self-control. So the very first thing that Paul is saying is you want to abstain from sexual immorality, you must have self-control. You must possess your own vessel, your body, and not allow your body to dictate your emotions and your, uh, your feelings and those kinds of things. You must understand, you must filter that thought, that feeling quickly. And does it please God or does it? No, it doesn't please God. Then you don't do it. Because sin is a choice. And we all have a choice to sin or not. But the question is, will you be like Joshua that we see in Joshua 24, 15, when he says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And at the very end of that verse, which is our life verse for our family, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Once you make that decision, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God does not force me not to sin. He doesn't force me as much as in early days where you think, Lord, please just take this brain out and give me a new brain, give me a new body, don't let me do this. Lord, just you know, beat me up, whatever you want to do. You get all these crazy things going in your head when you first get saved. But he doesn't force me not to sin. He loves me because he gave me to be a free moral agent to choose him, to please him versus self. And we must choose to change our mind and how we see things. If you think any form of sexual immorality is fine as long as I don't sleep with someone and you think everything else is fine and acceptable because I'm not hurting anybody, it's just me, then you need to have a change in mind to that. You need to change the way you think about that because God's made it very clear to us any form of sexual immorality does not please your God. So Paul's encouraging these Christians to possess, to hold his own body under you know, control in, their, in a way that honors God. Why? Because he says... You may not realize this, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 6.18, that sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. You're self-destructing, and you don't even know it. Because your passion is for him, not for the lust of the flesh. 
Your passion, Paul says, is not the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the first thing he says, you want to overcome and you want to stay away from sexual immorality? Self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. You must mature in your relationship with God. And he gives you love, his love, and one of the facets, the adjectives of that love is self-control. The second thing we see here is that we must know God. In verse 5, we must know God. We must get into the Word of God and to spend time talking to Him and listening to Him to know these things, to be in His will. And when you know God and you know His His will and you know that it pleases Him, you will live a life that is of, of moral purity for God, and you will also not do what Paul warns, and that you will not take advantage or defraud his brother in this manner as well. An adulterer defrauds his mate and children. The fornicator defrauds the, his future mate and children. Both defraud this illicit partner, this forbidden partner that God says you should not have. Why? At the end of verse 6, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. So that's a stark warning for all of us, that any sexual immorality will be dealt with by God. He says he, the Lord is the avenger of such. That is another reason why we do not. Self-control will keep you from uh, sexual immorality. Knowing God will keep you from sexual immorality. Knowing that there is going to be a judgment upon that sexual immorality in your life should be a third reason why that should keep you away from that. That God sees all things and he will know that even though you may have gotten away from it or from with it or it seems like you did it and didn't, nothing happened and everything, it doesn't mean that God is not going to deal with that or has been dealing with that in your life since. But we must trust that God will punish sexual immorality and no one gets away with this sin, even if it is undiscovered. Unrepentant heart in this area is not good. I encourage you, my brothers and sisters, if you're dealing with it, you must repent and not think you'll just get away with it. Why? Because for God did not call us to uncleanliness. As a child of God, he didn't call you to uncleanliness. He called you to holiness. We must live a sexually pure life for God. Why? Because another reason why we, we can have sustained from the sexual marriage is, is he has a call upon our life. He has a call to us to holiness, not to uncleanliness. There's a calling by God to you and I as a child of God to live holy. Paul developed this kind of the same line of thought in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and also 15 through 20. He says, and he ends that whole kind of area about glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is God's body, <laughs> it's not your body. And so he's called you and I to make sure we live a life that is pleasing, a Christian life that is pleasing. And he gives a warning. He says, if there's anyone who rejects this, does not reject man, but he rejects God. I'm not going to listen to anything you're saying right now, Pastor. Like you're rejecting me. Like these are my words. I'm reading it from the scripture. These are not my words. These are God's words. I've been rejected quite a bit. I'm not worried about that piece of it. I'm worried about you. I'm concerned for you that you would reject God's word today. Now, I'm not saying any of you are caught up in sexual immorality whatsoever. We're not even, they're not saying that they were caught up in this. But it's a warning to all of us like the warning to there. Our culture is filled with sexual immorality. You must be aware and must abstain. Don't get caught up in the world. 
You're in the world, but you're not part of the world. It's like the boat. Your boat is on the water, but don't get in the water. Stay in the boat. God has you protected in his boat. Don't get in the worldly water. The sharks will devour you in heartbeat. Another reason and ability to stay away from sexual immorality is that God has given you and I the Holy Spirit. He has given the Spirit of God that lives within you as a believer. And He empowers the willing and trusting of our life to overcome sexual sin. And it's by His Spirit God has given us the resources for victory. You want to overcome something in your life that you're battling with? Do you try to get rid of it? Trust in Jesus Christ completely. You will have the Holy Spirit empower you to be able to give you the strength, the empowering, and the, the, the resources essential to give you victory over that sin. And there is no other way. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So that was holiness. That is what God's called in a Christian life is to live a holy life. In the process of sanctification that God is doing in your life, you are to resist sexual immorality and everything that's attached to it. The second thing he's called us to after one after holiness is now the second part is habits. You must create godly habits. Habits that's going to bring happiness to your life. We see here in verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So he's sitting there, I'm writing this to you about love, a brotherly love, a closeness there that unites in, uh, brothers and sisters together in, a, in a one body, a church body, to love one another, to help one another. I don't even have to write to you about these. Why? Because you're living this out. Why? Because God has taught you this. Paul is repeating what God's taught him to the people so they knew. But he's basically saying right there, I, I, God has taught you this and you're living this out. For in verse 10, indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. You can sit there and say, I love people. But it's just only the three people that are, you're getting something from. But Paul's saying, I know you're loving people. You love all the people, even all the way through to Macedonia. This is just the ones that were so close to you and you're willing to show up and see you. No, your love is greater than that, that God has given you. But that's part of the maturing personally, to have to develop habits, good godly habits that are pleasing to God. These maturing personally, these habits are harmony honesty and happiness here it's 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 all wrapped up into these this harmony with others we see here we must learn to have this brotherly love for another person this most basic principle that god has taught them you must develop a habit of loving other people unconditionally You, do you want to have a solid Christian life? You must learn to love unconditionally. You must develop that habit. Because it's truth. And it is the will of God. And it pleases God. At any point in time, we'll love them if they... And you fill in the blank to... They have to meet some demand from you. You're wrong. As a brother and as a sister, they're part of the same body. They're part of the God's family. We must learn to develop habits of loving one another. Why? Romans 5a says, 
God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is an ultimate form of love, isn't it? To give a life for a brother? Did the brother have to get his life straight and straightened out before you start loving him? Not if you're, loving, not if you're living as, God, as Christ demonstrated. He showed love and died for that person before they got saved. We're to love them before they got their act together. And they're mature and growing and perfectly walking just like you're walking, right? First John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. But Paul was, was encouraging them. I, I see your brotherly love. I see you're doing this. I see this is going great. I see that God has taught you this and you've actually implemented this. And that you're loving people, all the brethren from all of Macedonia. But notice here at the end of verse 10, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Love more. Love more. If you think you've arrived, you haven't arrived. Because there's always room. Why? Because love is the fruit of the Spirit. It is what people partake of your life. And we want more fruit in our life that people can partake of, of the love that you have for them. That God did in your life. It's amazing. Verse 11 not only do we have this harmony between two people, between people, between brothers and sisters here, that's part of our maturing personally, that's part of the developing these habits, but the second one is honesty, verses 11 and 12 here, for, also, for you also aspire or desire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So now we have this honesty piece of a habit where we need to aspire or desire to lead a quiet life. This aspiring, this, 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 this leading to a quiet life means that we should have this, uh, this aspiration or ambition in our life that we should as, that we it's we're content, we're good with having a quiet life. That it's good to have a quiet life. Not an out-of-control, busy life, like you're out of control, don't even know where your head is spinning because you're going to the left and to the right and forward and backward, and you have no idea what's next. We call it spinning out of control. God is saying you must develop a habit of a quiet life that is good and right in the will of God that pleases him. Now this quiet life completely goes in contrast or butts the head of the entertainment and excitement world of today. Because of modern attraction today, the modern thinking today, the way people think is, you must entertain me before I show up or while I'm there. I'm bored. I got something to do. So give me something to do that I can entertain myself. We develop it in our kids constantly. Get something to keep them entertained. We say it all the time versus teaching children about self-control and learning to have a quiet moment here and just to be still. Where's my phone? Where's the, why isn't the television on? Why isn't this on? Why isn't that on? Why isn't someone around? Why isn't this here? You constantly feel like you are addicted to this entertainment and excitement and it will damage your spirituality and you will uh, ruin you culturally. can almost say that the excitement and the entertainment of this world today is like a religion to many, many people. They have their places of worship called amusement parks and theaters and concert halls and sports arenas, television, internet connections. You can call them their, that's your little chapel. Where are you at? Where's Johnny? Oh, he's in his little chapel spending time. 
And they wonder why they're not growing spiritually and maturing. You wonder why they're more involved in the culture of around them and they're getting very vulnerable to sexual immorality. Because you allow as parents your children not to grow up and learn to live a a quiet life. But always feel like you have to entertain them because they want to be entertained and excited. Adults, put away the childish things the Bible says. Why? Because it's damaging your spirituality and your growth because you're too entertained by this world. I'm just warning my brothers and sisters here because I'm watching as you get involved in so much of the things that are of this world, it's causing anxiety and fear and it's causing to zap your spirituality. Stay away from the news. Stay away from certain entertainment and all these other things. Learn to live a quiet life, the Bible says, because it's for your own good. It's in the will of God and it pleases Him. Why would you now push me back right now what I'm saying? I'm not saying all of you are doing it. Some of you or someone's listening right now are pushing me right now back by what the Word of God says and that is to live a quiet life. How many times I've heard over the years, I don't want to live in the North Country. It's too quiet. There's not enough clubs going on up there. There's not enough food places to eat and enough shopping places to go. And I've got to constant. We lived in California. You want to know what this about a quiet life? You, in California lifestyle, it's, you have to feel like you go all the time. I was so relieved being in living up here that God loved, led us here. Because I can tell you, living a quiet life is so much easier up here than down into this the depths of the world out there. But still, people can't be quiet up here either. I don't know how. They cannot because their minds are not set upon what God or know what the Word of God says. But Paul is saying here, by the power of the Holy Spirit and to you and to me and to them then, we need to live a quiet life so that we can really take the time and give the attention to listen to God and have Him direct your life don't know what God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what God's going to tell me to do. Have you been quiet? Have you been still? Have you been listening? No, I'm really, really busy. And, you know, I had to do this. And I really felt like I needed to go, you know, climb a mountain for the 10th time this this summer. And, and okay, that's great. But did you find quiet time on the top of the mountain? Did you? I'm not saying it all this bad. I'm just saying we must learn to have a quiet life. To mind your own business. <laughs> I kind of actually like that. Right? Because you know, if, I, if you didn't know me and I came up to you and, and you were asking me a bunch of questions and I looked at you and said, mind your own business. You would be very offended, wouldn't you not? But it's Biblical. What are you doing in, up, up in everybody's business? I assure you, your business is all messed up. You need your own problems need to be fixed inside your, in your life. Why do you spend so much time, Paul is saying, up into other people's business? You know what I'm talking about. Tell me about your life. Oh, no, I, I, let me tell you what I saw on Facebook. Oh, let me tell you what Instagram was going on. And did you know what... I don't, I don't want to know everybody's business. That's why I never ask. I mean, if you want to know, if you want to be on Facebook with me, if you want to be on Instagram, I'm not on it a lot of it. Because, but I'm not looking for everybody, up in everybody's business. I, I love you. And I want as a relationship, especially for those who used to be here and are gone, I love when they share the things that are going on in their life that are good and encouraging what God's doing in their life. It's a very, very encouraging but Paul says here to them, they had a problem where they were warning them, if you want to have something that's going to cause your, your, you to mature and to grow properly, to, 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 to draw and be in the will of God and to please God, be very careful not to get into people's mind. Mind your own business. And it means don't meddle in the lives of other people. 
But Paul is not saying and does not mean that every individual is to mind his own business in such a way that we live apart and separately and isolated and off the grid so no one get to know me kind of a thing. He's not saying that either. Matter of fact, God uses other people in your life to encourage you and to help you in your walk. But it's for the good. It's according to God's will and it pleases God. But if you get into other people's mind, into people's, other people's business just to destroy or to find faults or to bring judgment or be legalistic and all those kind of things, you've got to stop it. You've got to stop it. It's not helpful. It's not good. And then he also mentions work with your own hands. There's a dignity. There's an honor of work that God has given us. He's called us to work. God's plan is for in a progression in society into work is to do work with your own hands not have other people do the work and you just take from them we're all called to work if you have the capability physically but he's not speaking just physically here about working with your own hands manual labor yes because he's trying to warn them of this Greek culture that they're in, that it, it was a sign of honor and, and sign of prestige when you didn't have to work and everyone else worked instead because you've arrived. That was the pinnacle of success. Do you still work? I don't work. God's called us to work. And it brings dignity and honor. That's why I get a little squirrely with it. None of us could work for these last five months. Because man needs to work. And when he doesn't work, watch out. Things are not going to be good. Why? Because Satan uses that as a snare, an opportunity to come into the people's minds because their hands are idle. God blesses work. God doesn't bless laziness. And to think that you can justify, figure out a way, like the Greek culture, it's so much better not to work and just be lazy and just take from others who are working, it is not right. And he commanded, that's a commandment in a Christian life, a believer is to work with his own hands. And then verse 12, we truly are going to wrap up here on this one twelve, and hopefully in four minutes here. But that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. We see two more things that's very important in our walk. And that is, yes, you're working with your own hands. That means you're out and about. You're doing things. People see you. And Paul is warning you that you walk properly toward those who are outside, meaning outside of the faith, non-believers. So you're out there as a believer in this world doing the work that God's called, God has called you to do in the environment, in the office, or the business, or the wherever he's planted you out there as a light and salt to share the gospel and to lead people to Christ. He's gonna, all these non-believers are going to watch your life. The question is, if you're walking properly, it should bring glory to to God. It should please God in the things that you say and do out there in the world. To those who are watching, the outsiders, those who are non-believers are going to look and they're going to see that your life is different than their life. And so when you combine this, this love, this brotherly love, the love that you have for your brothers and we're walking properly and those who are not Christians yet and they're watching your life and seeing as an example and in the influence that you can have on society as a believer. And because of the, your walk properly, you lead people to Christ. And those who are, walk, who are of, of God, they too will be encouraged to walk in a deeper level of holiness 
and purity and harmony and the, and, and the happiness of these things that we're just talking about, it will cause others, believers, to walk even deeper in the relationship with God. And lastly, he says, and then you may lack nothing. Paul completes his thought here. It's tied back to chapter 3, verse 10, where that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. He says here that we may lack nothing. If we follow his teaching and follow his example, he says they would lack nothing. That means they are, or they're going to be content in their life. There will be a contentment that you just cannot overcome. And when you're seeing that person's life, because there's, a, there's such a contentment, a place of peace, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world does gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Philippians 4, 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And we see in 1 Timothy 6, 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. So Paul is sitting here. Be mindful, my brothers and sisters. Until I can get there to see you in person, I'm just warning you and exhorting you. I'm telling you, don't get wrapped up in the culture of this world because you do what the, like the world does. You go out and do the things that they do. There will be consequences. As a child of God, there will be consequences you're not going to like. You certainly are not going to have the joy and the peace that I'm talking about. The sanctification, the changing process of your life will be hindered. You will not have the harmony between you and your brothers and sisters. You won't experience that harmony. You will, you will not experience an honest days of life of work you're going to sit there go to work and try to do very little work and try to get as much pay and then complain that you're not getting more money for what you're not even doing that should never be you work hard you do everything and give everything you can by the grace of God to wherever you're working and doing whatever you're doing you should be a great example of an honest Christian worker in the work world. And as we see this, we're going to move on. The last one will be next week, Lord willing. And we are going to take a look at our hope. And our hope is in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ.